0: Hello and
1: welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week, journalist, historian and author Vodine England talks to me about the history of the Hong Kong Club, which was established in 1846. Vodine has written a book on the club's history
0: and I asked her how the club came into being bunch of chaps having a drink, thinking, gosh, need a place to do this more regularly. I think that could be, well, the essence of it all. But being a little bit more serious, most of these men who were the founders of the Hong Kong Club already knew each other from their lives together in Canton. I mean, these are the men who who came on the first ships into Hong Kong, which founded it as an international place. And they had most of them been already in Canton trading for various different firms, and living, as they said in their preamble to the club rules, in the greatest intimacy, meaning that, of course, in what we now call Guangzhou, but in Canton at that time, traders all lived in what they called factories, which were all-in-one buildings, where the office was downstairs, the warehousing was downstairs, but upstairs is where the men lived and ate and drank. And mostly each company had their own factory, or we rather more accurately each nationality. There was the British factory, the American factory, and so on. But of course, they're still all in a very tight little line of buildings in a very close compound. So they knew each other well. They were used to, they were in way forced to be socializing with each other and no one else during that time. So of course, they turn up in Hong Kong. There was very little to Hong Kong at that time. Very few buildings, almost nowhere to go. So gatherings began again at trading houses. There were a few low down hotels. I mean, of course, you can always get into this cliche Oh, wherever the British go in empire, they must have a club As if there's something sort of special and exotic about that Well, everybody who travels overseas Other empires also make clubs And I think another very important aspect of this whole thing You know, why do you want a club? You have to imagine a time When there was, of course, no internet, there was no automatic communications, there was no instant delivery of mail or newspapers or information of any kind. And yet it was at the beginning of a particular, certainly not the first, and we know it's not the last, wave of globalization. These were just young traders who were traveling around the world to the other side of the world. They needed to have introductions. How do you meet people? How do you get information? All the kinds of things that we now do on our own through a mobile phone, you actually had to engage with other human beings to do that then. And, and a club is vital for that.
1: Now, what were the rules right at the beginning? I mean, did you know, what sort
0: of class of gentleman did you need to be? They first of all looked at other clubs, which they knew from their world, from the trading world. I was a bit staggered at first to find a reference to something called, I suppose you pronounce it, the Bicolor Club. And I was thinking, what on earth is that? Turns out it's in Bombay. And it was for the trading elite, which in Bombay means Parsees, as well as foreign traders, mostly Jardines, sorts of people. There was the Madras Club. They looked at the rules for the Madras Club. Um, Now, the point about these rules from the clubs, as you note, in India, was that they did actually specify what they meant by a gentleman. And the interesting thing about the Hong Kong Club is that they did not specify what they meant by a gentleman. Now, there's a really interesting point in here because the elite in India was quite different to the elite in Hong Kong. So if you want to sort of look simplistically at the hierarchy of things in India, of course you had, basically, you had a huge civil service. You had the governor, and you had all the sort of worldly appointed administrators, and then you had the whole civil service, and you had the military, and all the ranks of the military. And only after that came the traders. Now, the early days of Hong Kong, of course we had a military, Exactly who was in charge administratively was a bit messy. Then the actual elite was the trading elite, I'm guessing. But I'm thinking that might be why they didn't go into really particular definitions. There was one rule about how one had to make sure not to damage one's standing in the community. But again, it was left open. It was left undefined. Everything was just understood. Now, in 1846, I mean, I remember that magnificent
1: building that was, I think, knocked down in the early 1980s. Was that what
0: they had in 1846, or did that come much later? The building you're thinking of on the waterfront, uh, or what was then the waterfront in early 20th century Hong Kong, and that was knocked down in 1981. No, that was only built at the very end of the 19th century. And it was built on land that, wasn't around in 1846. So going back to the beginning, you have to imagine that what we now see is the tram line in Hong Kong. That was the waterfront. So Queens Road existed and it was just about the only main road in Hong Kong. And buildings on the waterfront side of, of Queens Road were uh, mostly trading houses, but also the Supreme Court. And some of them had little jetties going out into the water there. So Queens Road was the centre of it. Wyndham Street, where it meets Queens Road, that's actually where now on one side you have Marks & Spencer and on the other side you have Entertainment Building. That site of Entertainment Building, that was where the Hong Kong Club was in the beginning. And much smaller. It was... A smaller building, but by the standards of the time, it was quite large and imposing. It had a frontage, obviously, on Queen's Road. This is what was later known as the gutter, where brokers would always gather. So some brokers were members of the club and some were not, but definitely the place to exchange information about prices or trading detail about different companies and so on was on the steps or in the front of the Hong Kong club and it was called the gutter and it's where the brokers hung out but the actual club building it had of course dining rooms very important in those days was billiards so you can imagine what wild lives these boys were leading there was actually strangely enough also a large bar and upstairs quite a few rooms so always in those days clubs were considered residential because they were forming as I say this role in early globalization of being a place for travelers to to connect locally. So if one had a proper introduction or knew the right sort of people, a room could be got at, at the Hong Kong club.
1: Absolutely. And some of these men would have been the early trading houses. So Jardines,
0: Dent, Turner. Mm. Absolutely. Those are exactly the names of, of the people who founded the club. Not necessarily everybody at Jardines was interested. You know, one, one member of the family was and another wasn't. Uh, Dents were very important. Turner and company which few people have heard of today, was vital because some of their people helped put up money. And there was a man called Patrick Dudgeon. Uh, I mean, this was one of these staggering things you find out when you're researching something and you don't expect it. But in actual fact, the club virtually closed in the 1850s. They were making no money. Nobody could afford it. And the club was unviable suddenly and there were even announcements in the newspaper saying the club is closing you know everything's going to be sold off and you know forget about it and then suddenly with no explanation about a month later oh the club is reopening it's thanks to a man called patrick dudgeon a lawyer who revitalized the mortgage on the property and allowed it to carry on but the club then did sort of reconsider maybe they didn't need to be quite so lavish with the menus i mean they were still pretty lavish
1: (laughs) would you say it's quite safe now
0: that opens a huge can of worms. Does one believe in the property market of Hong Kong? But I think your question is referring to the fact that when the old building was knocked down in 1981, it was a huge controversy, both inside the club and, of course, in the wider community, some, of whom, some members of whom wanted the heritage aspect of the building to be saved. But, of course, who's going to pay for it? It's technically owned by the members, and the members would have had to cough up a lot of money to, first of all, restore and save the old building. The government was also, depending on your point of view, you could argue, slightly unhelpful. Something that is now considered feasible in many places was to transfer plot ratio. So the development potential of that site, of the gorgeous old club building that we some of us recall, could have been transferred to a site behind it. And so that the, the financial benefit of, of prospective development could have been retained and save the old building. Had there been a slightly more imaginative approach to the legalities, however, none of this turned out. The old building was knocked down, and as we know, there's now a, a high-rise office building. So of course, there's you know, more than 16 floors of office accommodation for rent at, at very high rates now. This does not mean that forever the club is safe. Of course not. Rents can change. The costs of running a club that has a different kind of bar or restaurant on every floor are quite large. But then again, the membership is used to a certain standard of service. So they've got a huge staff, many of whom have been there for generations. That's another huge cost. So I don't think people are complacent, but certainly at the time they knocked down the old building. It was because they wanted to secure a financial future. I mean, the thing that people are still most upset about from inside the club is, of course, what was put in its place. Some people, mostly architects actually, architects and engineers really like the new Hong Kong Club building and they will go into extraordinary detail about exactly those curvy bits of concrete and how they were sort of knitted into the corner pillars and all kinds of things. Most ordinary people just think it's a really boring office building (laughs) and are rather disappointed that you know some of those gorgeous old features of of, well fine we can say it was a sort of Victorian pastiche you know sort of early compradoric architectural style but you'll be hard-pressed to find any sign of that history in the current building.
1: I'm talking to journalist and author Vodine England about her book, Kindred Spirits, A History of the Hong Kong Club. If we return back to 1846 and look at, you know, you were saying about it was an opportunity for people to meet. So in that first building, which is now where the entertainment building is on Wyndham Street, what sort of
0: facilities would you have had? Eating, drinking, billiards and sleeping. I think that about sums it up. Soon afterwards, for example, when the Portuguese club was founded, Club Lusitano... It became very well known because it had a a fabulous performance space. So very active in the early days of that colony. The amateur theatre was was quite active later in the 19th century. And so performances, or even, for example, travelling artistes, some sort of singer would turn up and they'd be doing their tour of all the empire. And so they'd turn up in Hong Kong. Now, there wasn't a particular space available at the Hong Kong Club for such things. I think partly because of the way the building was built, but also because the club then, as now, is not fond of allowing the the whole broad public in. Otherwise, you know, it's a private members' club, and and then, as now, they like to keep it private. How many initial members were there? They had hoped that the first fundraising effort before 1846 to get the money together to to build this thing would attract a hundred upstanding chaps with enough money to pay for it. Not quite that many turned up with money in hand. Shortfalls were made up by some of the others. But even then, when you—that's th- a—that's a lot, actually. When you think of the very early population of Hong Kong, it means basically this was the mainly British but international trading community at the time, they came together to form this club. And what's interesting also that then, and in fact even up till after World War Two, the club has always had special categories of membership for officers in the armed forces and the Navy. And some of these were active in the beginning of the club. And more interestingly, and I think less known in Hong Kong, is that, of course, horse racing was taking place from the early days in Hong Kong. The Jockey Club was only founded in the 1880s, so who was organizing it? Well, it was these men at the Hong Kong Club. You had to put your name down if you were entering a horse or if you were going to ride a horse or if you were going to. That all happened at the Hong Kong Club. And it's not until later in the 19th century, I mean, gradually, you know, Hong Kong grew, so society opened up. So, of course, this original hardcore that that formed the Hong Kong Club was joined by many other different communities that, you know, show the sort of growing society and and really quite mixed racially class, gender-mixed society that was 19th century Hong Kong.
1: But that wasn't entirely reflected at the Hong Kong Club.
0: No, the Hong Kong Club was the original British trading
1: So what did you, in terms of it was no women, no Hong Kong Chinese? There
0: has never been, and not from the earliest records, and I can assure you I spent a lot of time in archives, not once do you ever find a racially defined category of membership. That doesn't say anything marvellous about anybody because it was not necessary. Everybody knew what was meant. This is the British club, therefore, is for British gentlemen. Now, this, uh, this word gentlemen, I mean, we can narrow be sort of, we can be quite satirical about it. But in those days, it meant something quite specific. It was clear to people who was and who wasn't. It's not all white people either. For people who had not been to the right school or were not in some way, I mean, some professionals were admitted To the club, uh, senior clerics, I mean, the bishop had no trouble, that kind of thing, and some religious, some educational figures. So some of the professions were, as it's a reflection of society. At that time, at large, some professions were attaining the status of being sort of gentlemen. And obviously, as far as Hong Kong was concerned, traders were gentlemen. So this is a kind of mutable term, but in the context of Hong Kong society at that time, that was known. Now, one thing that I still don't know, and I wish I could have proved one way or another was that, for example, this club I mentioned earlier in Bombay, the Bicolour Club, they had leading members who were Parsis. There's no doubt also from newspaper coverage in Hong Kong in that time, early 19th century, that Parsis were gentlemen. When there had been an attempt, for example, to ban them from attending some amateur theatre production at another club, it was outrage. There was outrage. You know, we cannot ban our dear trading colleagues and gentlemen from the Parsi community. And so they were absolutely accepted as gentlemen. Now, were they actually accepted in the Hong Kong Club? I don't know because we don't have membership lists from them. Yeah, I was going to ask you that.
1: I mean, you, you talk about um, looking at archives but how effective was the Hong Kong Club at keeping its archives?
0: Like just about every other institution in Hong Kong, there are virtually no records from before World War II. So we all blithely blame the Japanese, of course, during the occupation, uh, the lack of fuel, the paper was burned, and so on and so forth. I think also, as in other institutions, there's been a lot of post-war negligence. But in fact, with the Hong Kong Club, you've got minutes of every meeting of every committee of every month, every year since World War II, but virtually nothing from before. So in the case of the club, that's 100 years almost entirely undocumented, except for one extraordinary story. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to pin down. There's just sort of glancing references to a man who, I mean, try to imagine this. During the Battle of Hong Kong, December 1941, for some reason he's looking around his house thinking, gosh, what shall I t- grab with me? And he thinks to take some minutes of the Hong Kong club. I find this just really staggering. So he turns up in Stanley Camp and he's kept, not of course, all the minutes. He managed to keep... A copy from the very important moment in 1893 when the Hong Kong Club decided to leave its building on the corner of Queens Road Central and Wyndham Street and indeed invest in that new site that was going to be on the waterfront when all that new land was created that was part of the prior reclamation. You know, All the land in front of the tram line to the harbour at that point was created, largely thanks, as usual, as many things in Hong Kong, to Paul Chater and his good friend at Jardine's called John Bell Irving. They pushed for the prior reclamation. They created Hong Kong Land Company to exploit it. In the course of all that, they offered to the club the site that they still have on a 999-year lease. So that meeting in 1893, this man managed to take the minutes into camp, and they survived.
1: (laughs) Just staggering.
0: The other source, and I think these things are just, well, for me, really exciting. Basically, in England, you have to go to the archives of things like the Hong Kong Bank and of Jardines and of Swires, but Swires, of course, much later. They were not part of the founding of the Hong Kong Club. For me, what I call the archival gold turned up in the Jardines archives. I mean, unsurprisingly, I suppose, because there were Jardines men in at the, at the formation. There we could find all these handwritten notes of the meetings that actually started in 1844 of these men sitting around thinking, gosh, we want a club. How are we going to do it? Oh, well, let's see how others did it. Shall we have these kinds of rules? Or you know, How are we going to raise the money? Who shall we approach? You know, all those are in handwritten notes in little scrabby old notebooks, which are sitting in the Jardine Archives at Cambridge University Library. So that was really exciting. And then you come across these great big sort of monstrous sort of shoe boxes for very large shoes full of all random bits of <laughs> you know, random bits of parchment and you come across sort of literally, I mean it's the real actual piece of paper on which somebody has written in beautiful copperplate writing a receipt for opium in 1829 that kind of thing and so you pick you know, piece of paper up by piece of paper and gradually And then you have to try not to make a noise, which is difficult for me, um, because you're in this rare manuscript room in the Cambridge Library, and you suddenly come across a bar bill from the Hong Kong Club, you know, 1849. And how much was a (laughs) pint? They didn't seem to talk in terms of pint. It was Tiffin and Champagne. in numbers that make no sense now because, of course, you know, it was um, Mexican dollars and silver and stuff that I have a great deal of trouble converting into anything rational. But um, So I found quite a few subscription slips for different members of the Daddy Matheson Company for, you know, their joining the club and what they spent it on and, and then also correspondence about how the shipment of champagne had gone off on the journey and what we were going to do and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, I just loved that. That was so much fun. And of course the other sources, old newspapers, where sometimes there'd be a saga that would reach, usually to do with people being blackballed, rejected for membership, that somehow those things made it, it was a very small town at that time, you have to sort of imagine a you know, an English village, and everybody sort of gossiping about each other. So some of it made it into the newspapers as well. Now, along with the members
1: who you track from 1846 onwards, you also have mentioned how there were staff members who were with the club for generations. So were you also looking at the staff members as well?
0: Oh, yes, and that was fascinating. I mean, I I interviewed more than 150 members of the club here and elsewhere also as part of this job, and every single person will tell you how important the staff are as, as part of what makes that club a particular community. And I think also the staff themselves are fully aware of this. I remember the first time that I, I was going into the Hong Kong club to meet somebody to sort of have a, have a first interview with them. And I, I, of course, didn't know who I was meeting. A very charming waiter came up and, uh, you know, could he help me, madam, kind of thing. I said, oh, well, I'm looking for so-and-so. Oh, OK, well, he's not here yet, but, you know, sit down. And they know everybody... Um, and so I started talking with him, and I said, well, how long have you, be, you been here? And he said, oh, I'm very new. I've only been here 14 years. There are people who were part of the club from before World War II and who managed to survive the war one way or another, maybe running to China and definitely turning out thinner, and then coming back, and automatically, but there was no question, of course, that their jobs would be waiting for them.
1: Now... Not all meetings of Hong Kong
0: Club members took place in the Hong Kong Club. Well, no. And the most surprising discovery on that front, I think, was that there was actually a meeting of the board of the Hong Kong Club in Stanley internment camp. So here you have a bunch of people, not enough to eat, very uncomfortable living situation, a whole lot of tension and stress all day, every day. And then in the middle of this, these sort of at least temporarily deposed captains of industry decide to sit down and have a board meeting of the Hong Kong Club. I mean, one has to ask why. Or maybe it was a good idea to keep themselves busy. But no, there actually was a specific reason. It was because a member of the Hong Kong Club staff from before the war was the housekeeper, Mrs. Thornhill. And she was also in camp. Now, at this moment in camp, there were still hopes later to be thwarted that British people would also be repatriated out of camp. There had been, Canadians and Americans had been able to be sent home from camp and British were hoping for the same. But Mrs. Thornhill was hoping that she would be one of those sent back to Britain. But it was widely known that she wouldn't have anything to live off when she went there. So this astounds me. These guys in camp from the Hong Kong Club, who are all supposed to be rather busy just with themselves, have this meeting in order for all of them to very solemnly sign a large, you know, document in effect, ordering the Hong Kong Bank in London to give this Mrs. Thornhill £100, and that all these men, you know, head of Jardines and head of all the other large companies in Hong Kong at the time, would guarantee that this £100, you know, was safe and, you know, they'd get it back to the bank later, but in the meantime, you know, please look after Mrs. Thornhill. So I thought that was rather lovely. But what's also fascinating about that particular document is that when this war is over... We will, of course, restore the funds to the bank. I mean, there was no doubt in these men's minds that the war would be over, that they would be on the winning side, and that they, of course, would be going back into the same positions of power and influence that they had had from before the war.
1: When did the Hong
0: Kong Club widen its membership out? This was a huge debate, and interestingly, it was propelled, again, by the same guys who'd founded the club in the first place. I mean, not the same men, but (laughs) coming from the same companies. It was the big trading companies who were just finding it increasingly anachronistic that the men they were doing business with every day, they couldn't actually take to lunch because they were not British. However, that was defined. I mean, this is a very loose word, as we know. It has different meanings at different times. But anyway, the fact is that Chinese colleagues and friends could not be brought into the hong kong club and in the early 1960s the largest trading firms were beginning to activate on this issue and trying to force the club to change the rules there's a lot of detail about who they got to speak at which meeting and i mean there (laughs) i shouldn't say this but there are sometimes disadvantages in having too many minutes of too many meetings (laughs) i spend a very long summer going through every page of every one of them It was finally agreed by 1964 that, yes, there would be invitations to an initial 150, what they call members of the local community. Now, this, again, is not a strictly racial definition. And what I find fascinating is that two of the top three names of the list of these new members are, in fact, not Chinese as such, but Eurasian. So number one was Francis Zimman, the bank's broker, I mean, a very interesting and wealthy man in Hong Kong. And, of course, he was at the center of all the business that was going on in Hong Kong at the time, and for him not to be able to come to the club was just insane. So he was the first in. Q.W. Lee from, from Hang Seng Bank. And very soon also, still within the top five, you get Russian G. I mean, this list of the first 50 names in, I mean, people to this day are quite proud of their placement on that list. And, of course, nowadays it just seems bizarre that they had to wait until 1964. But, again, it's, it's kind of pointless when you're doing history to apply today's moral or political judgments to things happening half a century or a century ago it was a different place and of course there were people who were annoyed and angry and upset and and uh, discriminated against in 1996 the hong kong
1: club opened its membership to women now was that based on the hong kong club deciding to do that or was that based on the equal opportunities commission saying they ought to do that
0: like with the helena may saying that men could join the library it was the latter so and and Of course, I suppose, because I'm a woman, I often felt, gosh, well, look, it's all right for members of the local community. They got in from 64. It took until 96 until women could actually have equal rights. Now, this simplifies matters. First of all, in answer to your question, yes, it it only happened because there was a, a, a law which they had to follow, which had to provide equal opportunity to women as well as to men. So it was imposed from outside in that sense. But, again, it's this thing about how... Society is structured differently at different times. Much earlier, in fact, even you can go back to 1893, that board meeting I was mentioning, when they decided to move to the waterfront site. There was also a proposal at that moment to allow women to join. I mean, it's little known to this day, but the man who was propelling this argument we must take this waterfront site and we must have women joining as members as well. And the interesting connection that's always made is because we need the money. Women bringing your wife to the club was going to raise receipts at the restaurants and, and the bars and so on. I mean that was always just taken for granted and so actually the reason why we want to let women in is so we can make more money as a club. Now, I wish more women had realised their power in that respect and maybe could have fought more effectively earlier. At this same meeting in 1893, this extraordinary character, uh, in many ways, Robert Shewan, of Shewan and terms, he jumped up at this meeting and said, you saying we can only take this new waterfront site if we allow women in, and if so, I vote we don't move. And it's all there in this minute, saved by this man in internment, that if we're going to allow ladies, as they were called then, of course, we're not using the word women in, in 1893, how are we going to define ladies? You know, Are they the dancing girls of Wan Chai or are they you know, respectable wives? And, and of course, you know, there were fewer wives with their men at that time than there are later and so on, as we know. In the end, at that meeting in 1893, they had to disentangle the two things. Yes, we want the waterfront site, but they were only going to get a majority vote in favor of that if they did not let women in. Over the years since then, There were a couple of moments pre-war, but not many. But certainly after the war, when increasingly the financial situation for the club, I mean, it was just always pretty desperate. We forget this now. Mm. Really, until they knocked the old building down, it was a constant struggle. So there were certain moments, oh, well, we'll have a ladies' lounge in what was then the annex. So it was actually the building behind the Hong Kong club, just across what is amazingly called Club Street. They had access to a building which actually they sold in 1962, but so in this separate structure there was a ladies' lounge. And actually that's in a way a sort of an untold story also, that of course there were women who also had jobs in Central... And also needed somewhere to eat. And they often went to the ladies' lounge. And I met some of these women now and they look back, you know, they were running travel agents or florists or they were secretaries or they were running interior decoration firms. They were doing all sorts of sort of respectable ladies' businesses. But they were working in central just like the men. They also needed somewhere to have lunch. But they were still kept quite separate. So there was the beginnings of an associate membership for women from early post-war times. My thanks to Vodine England talking there on the history of the Hong Kong Club.
1: Next week, Katie Law takes me on a tour of the Tonglao residential buildings in Central, constructed in the 1950s and under threat from the Urban Renewal Authority. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.